Social minute looking at the film Seven in seven awkwardly cut up pieces. I am your host Darren, and today joining me is Adil. Hello. And Niall. Hello, Niall. Hello, Darren. Returning guest, Niall, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, all the way from <laughs> the social minute to this spin off minute thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and today we are going to be talking about the first of the sins, uh, gluttony. Uh, which, if you're watching along at home, goes from 8.56 to 16.20, if you have PAL, if you are sensible. Uh, if you are American, it is 9.21 to 17.07 on the NTSC codes. Um, we start with, um, we know, we've just discovered the body, um, and Mills and Somerset are trying to decide whether or not it's actually a homicide. Um, and then we kind of go to a bit more of Somerset and Mills getting to know each other, uh, we go to the autopsy where we get to meet uh, Dr. Santiago, uh, described as being 35 years old in the script, uh, played by Reg E. Cathy here, who at the time was 37. Um, so, you know, fairly close to the age described. And then we get the kind of um, probably one of the kind of the more kind of well-known scenes from this, which is Arlie Ermey deciding who is going to get this case um, and everybody trying not to. I don't know. It's really weird. It's kind of like pass the potato in, as to who doesn't want the case. And, you know, uh, Mills kind of wants it. Somerset, you know, doesn't want it. But the captain wants Somerset to stay on this particular murder. Mm. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, that is, that is where we kind of finish up. Um, but I also there's a one wonderful moment where Morgan Freeman's character is like, you know, um, talking to the captain and David Mills is like, I'm right here. And he turns and he says the exact same thing right to wonderful kind of I don't know. It's just it's just a great scene. Yeah. Uh, so what are your thoughts, gentlemen, on the, these, this particular scene? And obviously, you know, we're now getting the first sin of the film, gluttony. I think there's a lot of um, it's, it's awkward to say because it's, it's there because, like, well, this is the story of the movie and stuff. But like. Within this little section, there's a lot of kind of things, I guess, that need to be there. But, like, you're just kind of treading water to get to the story. Because it's like them, oh, is it a murder? It's like, we've seen the poster. We know what the pitch of the film is. Why do we have to waste time? It's like, of course it's a serial killer. Just get, get, get to the damn point, man. And then them, like, oh, who's going to get the case? Like, we've seen them on the poster together. We know these guys are going to be working <laughs> on the damn case together. Just get to the point. But... That wouldn't work in the film. So it's like, yeah, we have to go through this rigmarole of getting all the pieces together so then it flows better as a story. And so it's like, right, boom, serial killer, go. You know? Uh, I agree with that, but I also think that the, the those initial beats of them sort of feeling each other out and, like, especially in the, in the crime scene, like, noting clues, um, how delicate each character is, is really good to show not only sort of what kind of cop each uh, each of them are, but also how their dynamic is really like just already off to a bad start. Mm. Uh, I think that's really important. Uh, I agree. Like, yeah, we know it's murder, but 
Um, I think it does a good job of, of like the first thing that's really noted is like the barbed wire on the, on the legs. And then you're like, okay, cool. There's something bad happening. So like, even though they're kind of saying the bits and bobs of like, oh, it's uh, not a, it's not a, like, is it a murder? You, you sort of, the, the film's already telling you that it knows that you are already there with them. Um, but I think, yeah, the, the, like, the fact that Mills is, you know, when he finds the vomit, he, like, stumbles back and you hear things getting knocked over. So you know that he's disturbing the crime scene. So you know that he's, like, wasn't really prepared for tonally what this crime scene could be and he's being careless. And that seems like the driving factor for him getting turfed to go walk the beat with the officers. Like, I think it's... it. I get you... Like, we know it's a serial killer move, but it also it does enough other building that I think... <laughs> I didn't feel impatient, I guess. I think that, that I was curious about that bit, though, because that's a good point. Like, him stumbling back and knocking things over would be like, yeah, this is amateur hour. But then I was like, why doesn't he just bring the bucket out from under the table? Why is he sticking his head under there? Because <laughs> there's bound to be something bad in it. And I was thinking, maybe he does have the foresight to be like, well, I don't want to mess with the bucket in case I can't touch anything. So, right. like... I'm not too sure, but unless he, it is, just, no, he's just an idiot. He didn't think to just draw out the bucket from under the table. <laughs> it's worth saying, in the original script, there's a lot more going on in this scene. There's a lot more officers, like, present, and there's people being told to get out and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, Mills kind of gets into more of an argument with Somerset and then gets thrown out for arguing rather than just, you know, moving, you know, something in the crime scene. Um, so I think what's happened is obviously they've compressed some of that down and it does seem odd that all of a sudden Mills just is thrown out. Um, but at the same time, like he, you know, he's already had an, a, a kind of altercation on the way in where he was kind of making fun of the beat officer saying, you know, like, have you checked his vitals? And the guy's like, his head's been in spaghetti for 45 minutes. Like he's not like, <laughs> yeah. I don't need to check his vitals to know he's dead. Like, and I, I think of course, like, you know, that like again, as the as they kind of enter the scene, there was a little bit of conversation between um, Somerset and Mills, where he's like, "What what was the point of that conversation? Like, what were you going to say?" And you know, then we get the kind of the quippy Cole Guinness kind of line here as well, where he's like, "You know, we got a new record and stuff." Uh, it's worth saying uh, the actor who plays um, uh, who plays uh, Gluttony in this scene. Mm. Um, uh, the, when when uh, this film came out, there was a, an issue of Empire, and they did an interview with the victims from Seven, uh, with each of the actors who played the victims. And of note, there were only five people interviewed, which obviously should have set me off to know that something a bit fishy was going on. Um, and yeah, <laughs> no, we just happened to leave out <laughs> yeah. the last. Oh, well, we just couldn't get them. So in time. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 but the funny thing is, is like the guy, you know, he was talking about how he had to like be, you know, basically sitting there for hours and hours and hours. Um, and there is there's a nice little bit of trivia, which is um, David Fincher went because obviously this guy, when, when he's on the autopsy table, you know, basically he's fully naked um, with all the kind of extra prosthetics that they had to give to make him into, you know, gluttony. Uh, David Fincher requested that they make him extra endowed. Um, so as a kind of compensation for having to kind of endure all the makeup and stuff, he was like, you know, just give him a, a few extra inches. Um, so when he's on the table, you know, like mm. you, you briefly see him fully naked, but you know, most of the shots of, uh, that are on the table, they're kind of like, I don't know, they're at these angles so that you see the body kind of intruding into the frame just to see how big it is, but they don't really kind of dwell on 
like the whole kind of you know picture like at one time they always just kind of seem to give you kind of the conversation that's going on around this body um you know fortunately reggie kathy mm. isn't like eating a sandwich or something else which obviously you know which would have been the kind of epitome <laughs> of uh, you know an autopsy scene um i did have i've had in the past though yes. full-on arguments with a, with a friend of mine okay who was convinced that this was not an actual actor he's like that can't be real that has to be just a prop like <laughs> he just couldn't believe that this was an actual person yeah. That they use for he's like the why, why would you get in a person for that? And he's he's so huge as well. He's like, there's no way it's a person. It can't be a person. And then it's like, well, why would you just get in someone to just lie lie there like that and then lie flat <laughs> in their back and stuff? But um, looking into the actor, then like I, it was like a treasure trove to find out who this guy is because yeah. um, the fella called Bob Mack. Yes, uh, and as an actor, um, not been in much, but uh, in other credits, he was the stand-in. For Fat Bastard in uh, Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. So, a little bit of typecasting there, I guess, <laughs> potentially. Yeah. Uh, but then, apparently, he also wrote the song Be Somebody or Be Somebody's Fool from for the 1984 Mr. T motivational video <laughs> of the same name. Yeah, which is I, I had to go look that up, and it's it's everything you hope it's going to be. It's like a 50 minute like kind of um piece of like mr t and a bunch of kids like talking about like oh how you respect your elders and stuff and <laughs> it's where the song treat your mama right and stuff comes from it's in that that long video but at the beginning there's an um, yeah there's a song called be somebody dot 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 or be somebody's fool with an exclamation <laughs> mark which i always love but uh yeah there's just really cheesy lyrics about staying in school and stuff but the video to it's all cut to like t in a classroom in front of a blackboard teaching kids and stuff like that. And, like out dancing with them in the street and stuff. And it's like this thing, I'm happy now to have done this episode of this show just so that was brought into my life. Basically. <laughs> well, the funny thing is appearing in that special uh, are a few members of Kids Incorporated, including Fergie um, oh, yeah. from the Black Eyed Peas. <laughs> Uh, Shanice, uh, the singer who did um, some of the stuff for um, Pocahontas in the original Pocahontas movie, uh, I'm sure soon to be remade by Disney as a live action film someday. Um, and also Martika, for whom Prince wrote a few songs on her second album. Um, oh, yeah. So Martika, the toy soldiers, Martika. Yes, that, that, different... that Martika. Oh, right, no, there, nice. there is only one Martika now, um, <laughs> and that is her. Uh, yeah, so there is an actor under there. Um, and, you know, due to David Fincher, he is extra well endowed. Should you ever, you know, glance over that part of his body during the autopsy? Reading through the script, they sort of highlighted the grotesqueness by, like, when he's talking about the distension and stuff, it's like looking into the cavity um, in the script. While I kind of liked that they just had Dr. Santiago have it in a bag the stomach <laughs> yeah so like i think you're, you're right like it makes it seem much more detached from the victim and less gross it's, it feel, felt more clinical and then you've just felt like you're concentrating more on the dialogue and what was being described rather than being sort of taken away by looking at this giant body i thought that was a really smart yeah. filmmaking move of, of like making it so like you're doing these cuts around the body but it's always sort of on the on the down low and then the the moment of impact is holding a bag up and being like look at this stomach and you're like holy shit and then he takes it away and then you can listen to the the, the talk dialogue again i thought that was a really interesting way 
uh, of departing from the script such that we really could focus on, oh, these are the technical clues that they're talking about such that this was a really messed up encounter. You were never distracted from that. Yeah. Mm. And it also sets up the fact that obviously he's going to have to go through the stomach contents and that will lead to a clue that will lead to another. So so it's 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 like a it's you know it's it's a nice little kind of detail that you, you know the la- the kind of last thing that you remember from that autopsy is the you know the stomach contents. Yeah. And that is going to be the biggest clue for kind of you know starting off the chain of this actually being you know a series of murders. Um, and not just you know a random killing. Yeah. Um, it's mm. it's worth saying there's a lot of stuff kind of cut out from these scenes. Uh, in particular, a whole scene where Mills like uh, does some angry boxing. Yeah. Um, to get out his frustrations. Um, and there's a couple of scenes with his wife. Um, and then there's a lot of kind of John Doe. Uh, this is common throughout the entire script. You know, in the film, obviously we don't meet John Doe until you know pretty much the last kind of like twenty minutes of the film. Um, but in in the script, there was a lot more of John Doe kind of driving around in a car and being disgusted at society, um, and a lot of scenes set in abandoned churches for some reason. Like there are kind of there's scenes in this film later on which are kind of in cafes and stuff, which were originally in abandoned churches, <laughs> and it's kind of I, like it's so kind of weird that that's what Andrew Kevin Walker kind of wanted to emphasize. Uh, obviously, he was living in New York and hating living in New York while writing this script. So, uh, you know, it, it kind of has a lot of that kind of New York feel to it. Um, in the in the script, when, you know, Mills and Somerset first meet, you know, literally on like the second page or something, um, they identify it as being Philadelphia. But obviously, you know, it, it's it's just a town where it always rains. Basically, they, they never identify where yeah. it actually is. Um, and it kind of works better that way, I think, just to make it this sort of anonymous like nightmare world where like it almost doesn't because it's so horrible it almost doesn't feel real (laughs) like the whole thing is just like oh my god it's it's like they're literally living in hell because it seems (laughs) such a such a terrible terrible city yeah and and the kind of the weirdest thing is is that um you know uh obviously the fact that it's always raining is is a deliberate touch you know like the, the you know until until kind of um john doe shows up in the final scene it's pretty much always raining uh, which which is just to make it easier for the filmmakers to kind of match everything together, um, you know, something that you do kind of on a low budget anyway. Uh, but like the fact that there's no reference to what city it's actually set in, uh, there's also very, very few, like the fact that he says call Guinness, that's one of the very few kind of like cultural references in the entire film. Uh, obviously in the previous scene, you know, he referred to the officer as, uh, as Barney Fife. Uh, but that's it. Like it, this isn't this isn't a film that is full of kind of like you know um, uh, any kind of cultural references. Um, you know, aside from the fact that nobody has a mobile phone, you'd be hard pressed mm. to kind of pick a year as to when this film was taking place. Um, you know, were it not maybe for cars and you know maybe there's a kind of a few kind of fashion things that might. But otherwise, within the dialogue of the film, there's very little to kind of indicate exactly when this is taking place that was actually a thing i was just when i mentioned that was to someone earlier this week that i was going on the show and they actually said like oh yeah i rewatched seven recently and like you know what it's really dated now and then i rewatched it and i was like this is it nothing about this seems dated to me it no. seems like yeah you could make this now and this would still stand as a film like it's like, yeah. beyond the fact like oh yeah some modern mobile phone stuff and like the research and well, you can still have Somerset researching in a library, but you yeah. probably have Mills and a smartphone yeah. or something. But everything else is like, no, this is this is rock solid. As a, I, th- I can't actually remember. It was a, I think when I was, when I was on the social network minutes, um, 
I can't remember if I cited my favorite Dave David Fincher movie, but like looking at Seven, through the strength of his direction and it's because if you actually look at the script, it's so cliche riddled. Like there's lo- loads of tropes and like even just like the the world weary cop and the fact he's called Somerset because it's yeah. you know, he's in his autumn years, the Somerset, and he's got a headstrong young buck come in and like you know oh they don't like each other at first, but at the end they are the rest of friends and stuff like that, like. The fact that David Fincher's direction and the set design and this, the the wall of like like ominous scoring that goes on that really elevates it into being like at the time when it came out at least because there's so many seven imitators that came after it was so sort of unique in itself. So I would actually think like this could potentially be my favorite David fin- Fincher movie <laughs> just because of what he does to the material and the fact that it still stands so strong so many years later. And I think as well, like Howard Shaw's kind of score is kind of, um, uh, I don't know, like it's, it's very kind of like subtle, you know, like when they're, when they're in the crime scene and they're looking around and, you know, you get the shot of the cockroaches, uh, which by the way, there were like a bucket of cockroaches dropped on the actor. Oh, um, so, yeah. And then had to be scooped up at Fincher's the end of the... just like, don't worry, buddy. I'm going to make it up to you. You're going to have a huge dick in this thing. Okay? Yeah. Well, yeah, that was it. Kind of like what he endured was just kind of like, well, you know, okay, yeah, like, but they they basically they blocked up his ears so that the cockroaches wouldn't go in his ears, uh, but that did not stop them from going in his underwear apparently. Uh, so he, <laughs> the fact that he managed to stay still throughout all of that, um, but like just this kind of it's like there's not even I would say there's not even like any themes or anything like that. There's just this kind of ominous constant like hum of like something is wrong basically throughout the whole film like. Um, you know, there are a few kind of moments later on where the score is kind of like it does kind of soar a little bit and, you know, but it, there's never kind of an indication that, you know, it's kind of leading you anywhere other than just this constant dread throughout the whole film that there's something mm. kind of going on. I was wondering, actually, um, like if they did a particular thing, because I, I only kind of thought of it this morning. So maybe I rechecked the films like, oh, no, that's throughout the whole thing. But that kind of like. <laughs> I think it's it's very present in this scene, and I remember distinctly being as the van's approaching in the end. So I was wondering if that's supposed to be like, well, this is the beginning of the story, so we have that theme, and then we bring it back for the 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 finale. But then I say that it's like, oh, it might have been like a nice little bookmark for the score, but it could be like, no, we use that every goddamn scene <laughs> if you pay attention. Yeah. it's always there in the background. Uh, well, yeah, it, like through most of the scenes, like I mean, there's not like a huge amount of score in this film. There's, you know, there's less than you would actually think. Uh, but yeah, for most of the key, you know, murders, there is there is some kind of ominous kind of creeping score underneath. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I- interestingly, Howard Shaw, you know, he, he went on to work with uh, David Fincher again on the game and also Panic Room. Uh, Panic Room, I think, like, you know, those when it has the uh, the opening titles with the, the kind of the, the blocks kind of floating amongst the kind of skyscrapers. I certainly remember like kind of the musical cues from that, but I can't say I remember either of the scores for those two films as being anything kind of outstanding. Uh, obviously, I think you know in recent years, you know, uh, uh, you know Trent Reznor has become someone that that uh, David Fincher has started working with, and I think his scores are kind of more distinctive and uh, and I think fit Fincher a little better. I think mm. Howard Shaw's work is a little kind of blander. Um, in the film well, that's the thing like if I think of soundtrack to seven I instantly think of <laughs> yeah. Nine Inch Nails so <laughs> see, you can see the setup yeah. happening there um, already and obviously you know Howard Shaw has, has worked with you know a number of directors 
um, uh, over the years. Um, in, I mean, I guess probably his most famous collaboration at this point now is is with um, uh, Peter Jackson for all the kind of Hobbit and uh, Lord of the Rings films, um, obviously for which he won an Oscar. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I like I don't feel like the score is as I mean, it's just this kind of kind of creeping dread. Um, but I think it's what's more interesting is the you know like you say David Fincher has this kind of control um, something obviously he didn't have with Alien Three he literally had no control over Alien Three um, and he was fired from it three times <laughs> um, so the fact that he was very adamant about being able to control every aspect of this um, you know and and kind of uh, Darius Konji you know he kind of lit everything in a very specific way. Um, so that you know, like, like when they when they kind of go under the table and you see the cockroaches, you don't see like a ton of detail. You just see kind of the shadows, and I mean, it's kind of it's kind of a cliche from the mid nineties, particularly from X Files, of like nobody turning the light on when they go into a crime scene, and I think they kind of they <laughs> they kind of nod to it because Somerset obviously goes to turn the light off and on, and it doesn't come on, and I think this would also make sense that. Uh, while, you know, John Doe has been, you know, let's say paying the rent on somebody else's property, I guess there's been no point in him, like, paying the electric bill at this particular property. So, so the lighting, the lights are on in, in the room. You see a little sconce with, with a lampshade um, when Brad yeah. Pitt is making his quips, um, like, right after he gets up from knocking over the, whatever, the, the, the foliated tin cans. Um in the script, they, they mentioned that the main light has been taped around, so there's only a spotlight on the body, and they don't call attention to it directly, but that's also true. The only place where you see light is directly on its head, which is why you get to see the like pistol mark on the back of the head when Somerset's yeah. looking through the hair. And when the duck comes in, he, he suddenly he, he sees a lot more. They do the reveal of the face from the spaghetti. It's cast in light. Um, but then nothing else is. And like in the script, I thought it was interesting that, that Somerset shows Somerset being smart. He like cracks open the fridge and then leaves it open to say, it, it leave it, leave the door open. It's shedding some light. And they cut that. And I kind of wish they didn't, but I get that the whole, yeah. like lighting in this movie, especially is tied to like knowledge. And at this point they don't know enough, but when they're learning about all the things, you've got this brightly lit, um, autopsy room in the morgue, right? Um, by the end of the film, when you know all the dynamics, it's sunshine again. And I, and, I, and I feel like I can't remember all of the other deaths or whatever, but I feel like there's a scaling up in how brightly lit they are or whether they can open blinds or whatever. And like it definitely feels like the movie slowly mm. gets from dark to light. And like the one yeah. thing we know is this guy's dead, and that's the one thing we clearly see. So I thought I thought the lighting was really well done in this scene, especially having read the script to see that that was more purposefully like written descriptively, but like the way it was shot, it was doing the same moves but just more intelligently. Like I like you said before, I think like the 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 script is super cliche compared to the uh, compared to what actually came out, and it's just it's just the skill of what to do with those markers and how to make them less obvious, you know. Just like uh, Somerset isn't this chain-smoking guy, but he's still clearly the guy at the end of, the end of retirement, and he's like, you, you got six days, you're, you're done, you don't want to make this complicated, you're clearly experienced, you know, you, you see things immediately, you investigate quietly and methodically, and it's all these small moves that Somerset does that Morgan Freeman really pulls off that make it clear that he, he's a very good detective, Versus like making it built in that like he's like making it in the in the words rather than in the actions. 
Yeah. I mean, by the by, by kind of like um, it not being, you know, like kind of the X Files cliche of nobody turning the lights on. I mean, Somerset like literally, kind of when it's dark, he goes over and he deliberately turns the light ah, on. Yeah. He kind of, like he's so it's kind of it's kind of almost like saying, yeah, we understand this room is dark, but you know we've put as much light on as we possibly can, and this is you're still only going to get this. But then again, like the you know the the film was treated a particular way so that um, they skipped a step on developing the film so that there was silver left in the, uh, in the, like on the, uh, the celluloid. Um, so all of the blacks are a lot darker than they normally would be. So even if the scene was fully lit, it would still be fairly dark because oh, that was a deliberate process that they did. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, I think obviously these oh. days that kind of thing is, is achieved with digital intermediates. So you don't really need to worry about it, but they kind of made a, a very specific kind of thing <laughs> of like, yeah, we're going to deliberately have everything in this film be just a bit blacker than it needs to be. Um, you know, which I, I guess mm. some people feel that's a bit of a cliche. It kind of literally goes with a film that has like a dark subject matter where it's literally everything is dark. Um, including just the basic lighting and the fact that it's raining all the time. Um, and like you said, I mean, in the script, there is a, yeah. there's kind of an interesting take on, like, the, the whole scene where Somerset and Mills are kind of talking about... Well, Mills is kind of almost trying to justify his place as a detective and is like, you know, I did this, I did this. And, of course, I love the line where Somerset's like, yeah, but not in this city. Like, yeah. you've worked murders, but not not here. So, you know, you're just, you're just some kind of, uh, you know, upstate amateur. Um, but in the, in the script, Somerset had kind of, like, there's a point where Mill says, have you read my file? And Somerset goes, no, in the film. But in the script, he went, yes. And then there was a whole, like, couple of pages of dialogue about what Mills had done and, you know, a discussion of it. Uh, whereas I feel the choice to just go, no, here, just mm. makes it, like, a bit more like Somerset. Just does not have the time. Yeah. He's literally, in the kind of the lethal weapon yeah. cliche, he's literally seven days away from retirement. No. And he doesn't have the time to be reading up. Yeah, he's just, yeah. He's, he's just checked out. He's like, well, I would, yeah, why would I want to look? I don't care about you. Like, I'm, I'm like, yeah. I'm going to be out of here. Uh, and I you. think, obviously, as well, the the fact that we have the kind of uh, we don't we don't get a title card in this scene, but the whole kind of like the counting down of the days of the week. So we have kind of like Monday, Tuesday. Throughout the script, there is there's a there's a count of the days, um, and I guess. Before you know what the ending of the film is, that feels like, oh, well, this film is going to take seven days. It's called Seven. It's about seven sins. Like, it's all kind of tying it together. Um, but even in the script, some of those days were slightly off and they were on different. So, like, it wasn't as neat as it seems in the film. Um, but I do kind of like that it sets up this expectation from the viewer of, like, oh, well, we're going to see the final seven days of, you know, um, William Somerset on the force. Uh, but obviously that's that you know that never really kind of works out because the last few days aren't quite you know what you expect uh, but i do kind of like that the title cards yeah. give it this kind of feeling of like you know an 80s buddy cop film where like there's a specific kind of like you know um concept that's being sold which is like it's the final 7 days of this person's career and that's kind of the concept that you're getting but obviously that's not actually what's going on and those title cards are almost like a little bit misleading because, you know, as, you, as you're watching them go up, you're thinking, oh, well, you know, only two more days. And, you know, that's... Yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised. Because I know they had a they had tentative <clears throat> plans for some form of sequel to Seven at some point. But I'm surprised if not try to, like, tap into the vein of, like, a Somerset prequel. Because the fact that he identifies this as a serial killer straight off the bat, and he's just like, this is just the beginning of something. And he has the, he has the knowledge to be like... You know, I, this can't be my last assignment. It's just going to go on and on. Like this is going to be this case is going to wrap up cleanly. This is going to be a spiraling kind of thing. So it seems it's like, oh, this guy's worked serial killers before. He's he's had a past. Maybe not with anything this 
crazily, bizarrely evil is, is, is what John Doe ends up coming out with. But, like, it, you could potentially do, like, oh, we're going back to Somerset's rookie years. But who was the first serial killer that he hit up in, you know, the, the disco <laughs> era of this city? Yeah, um, I, I, I mean, I don't want to blow your mind, but uh, there was actually a sequel to Seven written. Um, and it was released. Yeah. And it stars... Or is it Along Came a Spider? Was it the Kiss the Girls? Or no, no, both, both, no, both of those, both of those oh, are uh, Alex Cross. They're oh. not, they're not, uh, they're not, they were never written as sequels to this. No, but this film, it stars Elizabeth Olsen and Sigourney Weaver and Killian Murphy and Robert De Niro. And it was originally written as a sequel to Seven and it was meant to be about um, Somerset. Um, but then, obviously, you know, Morgan Freeman did not want to return. And so it got completely rewritten. And Killian Murphy kind of took over the main role. And it's actually the film Red Lights uh, about Robert De Niro being a psychic. Oh. And in the original pitch, um, obviously, he's not a real psychic. He's a fake psychic, um, as all psychics are, I should note, because <laughs> uh, there is no such thing as real psychics. Uh, but for the sake of the script, um, you know, he was pitching himself as like this real psychic who could kind of, you know, uh, predict murders and all this kind of stuff. And the conflict within the film was originally going to be that Somerset knew he was a fraud and kind of figured out that he was a fraud, but it was kind of having difficulty proving it. And that was the whole kind of thing was like him trying to disprove this guy, but also a series of murders are going on. Um, whereas, you know, in the finished film, um, you know, Killian Murphy, who, you know, he's playing the character of Somerset is a real psychic. And that's how he knows that Robert De Niro isn't a real oh, psychic. Geez. And yeah. And, and that's kind of, and so that's how the, that's kind of like how the film ends up going. And um, yeah, it's kind of disappointing um, because, you know, uh, kind of, I, I don't know, like by the end of the film, you're like, this is complete and total nonsense. It's not a film that I would recommend anybody watching. That's so many years later too. That's just like, oh, so this guy was seven days yeah. away from retirement. Yeah. And then, like, oh, in 2012, he's still going. <laughs> I was like, God damn it. He's like, right, this year, this is the year I'm retiring. Like, oh, uh, Somerset, we need to investigate the psychic. That sounds like an easy case. <laughs> There's been no problems yeah. whatsoever. So it, uh, it did not do very well. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I would not recommend anyone watch it. But, yeah, like there was also a few other kind of, like, you know, proposed sequels to Seven. Um, which included one that was going to be called Eight, but with like an eight in the place of the G in the word eight, and you know there were for, right, like yeah, Sensei. there were there were a few other kind of like things up that kind of, but yeah, I would I would like be I would be interested in finding out you know what the kind of, um, you know the early years of Somerset would be like, um, with him becoming progressively more cynical. Mm. Of course, that is kind of the main conflict in the film as well. Is Mills is constantly like, you know, I'm happy and upbeat and I think the world is good. And, you know, and he keeps saying to Somerset, what happened to you? Why are you so cynical and terrible? And, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like in a different film, you know, Somerset would probably just turn to the camera and go, look, I'm the cynical older detective. Like, what can I tell you? That's that's my role. Yeah. I, I have no other role in this film. You can't make me be happy and everything, you know, like um, and obviously being happy isn't going to get David Mills very far anyway. Um but yeah, and I, of course, you know, yeah. uh, a scene which there's a, I can't remember what the name of the the thing is now on YouTube, but somebody did a breakdown of, uh, of obviously how David Fincher directs films. And one of the scenes he used was the scene in the captain's office as, you know, Arlie Ermey and Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt are kind of, you know, uh, having a bit of a fight here about who gets to kind of take control of this murder. 
And it's interesting because they said that, you know, like obviously the eye lines are very important. You know, if you've got three people in a, in a scene, it's, it's crucial that the eye lines kind of match so that you kind of know where people are. And like, you know, in this scene, it's very clear where people stand and what their kind of authority is and who's in charge. And, you know, just the way that the kind of Brad Pitt is kind of nervous energy and, you know, keeps keeps trying to, you know, ignore Morgan Freeman and just talk directly to Arnie Ermey. And then Arlie Ermey is kind of trying to talk to both of the guys and the fact that Morgan Freeman is ignoring Brad Pitt. Like the kind of the, the dynamics between the three of them mm. are kind of so clearly laid out. Um, you know, and we're barely like 10 minutes, 15 minutes into this film and you already know exactly like, you know, who is in charge. And, you know, even, even if you couldn't hear any of the dialogue in this scene, I think just the way that each kind of the two shots and the kind of the wide shots just make it clear on each of the close ups who is in charge and who is like, you know, deciding what goes on. And kind of, I love how the scene kind of ends with just like an exasperated Brad Pitt just being like, okay then. And just like, it's like, yeah, like that. Oh, I, I can't be bothered then. Yeah, that's it. I give up. I, you know, I was, I was trying to take control of this, but I just, I don't have the power, you know, like, uh, and I just kind of love how, how this scene kind of clearly lays out the relationships between these three people, um, you know, two of whom have only just met basically. Yeah, I, I, on that, I really noticed the vertical in those scenes. The fact that Morgan Freeman is standing the whole time and the other two are sitting um, just shows that, like, he couldn't be fucked about either <laughs> of these guys. He's six days to retirement. You might be my boss, but I, I don't want this. I don't want this, and I'm going to be looming over you, calmly telling you mm. this. And then, like, as Brad Pitt realizes he's losing, he's just not part of this conversation, that's when he goes from, like, sort of nervously hunched to, like, jumping forward but putting his hands on the desk and the, and leaning towards the captain to try and like be closer but what that means is Morgan Freeman is still above him in the shot yeah so even when he's standing and he's trying to be aggressive he's still clearly smaller in on the vertical i thought that was a really well good way of showing that he's he's desperate and trying to emulate but failing and and that and they both kind of just ignore him because he's do, and so like even when he's like tall Brad Pitt standing up he should be able to like dominate the scene they they shoot it and he and he acts it in such a way that it just comes off as really bland and you see just how desperate he is and how they see that desperation and don't care and he doesn't have a say in it yeah and also i do kind of love you know the whole i'm standing right here and morgan freeman just turning and being like you can't you don't you don't want this case you're too inexperienced like literally from yeah. saying it to the captain <laughs> just to turn in and saying it directly to, it's such a wonderful move because it's like you know, it's kind of like almost a, a comedy cliche to have someone be standing there while people talk about them. But the fact that he kind of just is immediately like, OK, they're not telling you to your face. You you shouldn't do this case. You like, you know, and, and I, I just kind of love that. Um, but yeah. And I, I mean, you know, I, I think like you said, uh, Niall, you know, there is a bit of kind of like a fi- kind of filler almost at the beginning where they're kind of like, you know, was it a murder? Is it a murder? Kind of like, yeah. And then when they do show the details of like, you know, the the bound feet and the bound hands, and then you know when they finally, when the guy basically comes in, lifts his face off the spaghetti, and goes, yeah, he's he's dead. Yeah. Like that that which is kind of almost a comical way to kind of finish the scene. Mm. Um, That's my favorite line of this whole sequence. Is like, he's yeah, dead. thank you, doctor. <laughs> yeah. 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 Of course, actually, as a major Seinfeld fan, I would be remiss. If I didn't mention that guy who comes in, that's crazy Joe Davola from uh, potentially the most acclaimed season of Seinfeld, the, the season four. Uh, crazy Joe Davola was a, a sort of a, a maniac who basically Jerry, Jerry and Kramer and uh, got on the wrong side of, and he was dating Elaine for a bit. 
And they had a running joke about, like, Jerry was constantly trying to avoid Crazy Joe DeVola. Uh, and there's a whole thing at the end where, like, he dresses up as Pagliacci, the clown, and stuff like that. Because it's sort of <laughs> really very strange territory. But as soon as he ke- comes in, I was just like, oh, my God, it's Crazy Joe DeVola. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> yeah, the thing is, that would have been very soon. It's only the... Kind Probably. of briefly. Well, yeah, no, it would have literally been like this. I think it's almost exactly the same year that he was doing the whole Crazy Joe thing. So it's almost like if they were after. going off that as well. Like if, if Kevin Spacey hadn't yeah. been there to play John Doe, it's like, hey, what, we got Crazy Joe DiVola to play this uh, this guy. He's <laughs> like, he's already got the rap, you know? You have like one doctor at the scene to say he's dead and then a different doctor to do the, the autopsy. Obviously, you know, because uh, they are two different skills. Uh, but I just kind of loved <laughs> that we have to wait until a doctor shows up to say he's dead before everybody will kind of admit the obvious. Um, but it, which, again, it like it, I, in like a Lethal Weapon 2 or 3 or something, that would be played as a comedy moment. Like mm. him saying he's dead would then be followed up with Mel Gibson quipping something and Danny Glover telling everyone how old he is. Um, and and yeah. so, <laughs> I, you know, which is which is which is funny, of course, because I have a, I have a feeling that Danny Glover in the first Lethal Weapon is young than um, what's his face who pl- recently played the character on the TV show? Oh, the um, modern Wayans like a, or yeah, yeah, uh, Damon Wayans. Damon Wayans. Sorry, um, <laughs> always got yeah, my Wayans yeah, I think I think in Lethal Weapon Four, he's like ten years younger than Damon Wayne Senior is now. Um, so yeah, but I, I again, you know, Somerset being seven days away from retirement is something that is kind of like a cliche from all those kind of like buddy cop films. Mm. Um, and I think it's only kept in because it works with the theme of like the seven days and the seven sins. Otherwise, I don't think it's really necessary for it to kind of be there. Like. You know, it doesn't really matter that he's retiring. Like it's, it, aside from the fact that he he restates it several times throughout the film, it doesn't really impact anything. Like you know, it's it's not like it makes the case more urgent or anything. Mm. Like it just means that he gets to say, "Oh, I don't want this to be my last case," and then later on he's like, "Oh, I guess I'm going to have to make this my last case." Yeah. Like I don't feel like the whole retirement thing really. Imp- it feels like something that's kind of left over from an earlier draft. What does- um, yeah, I think. I think it's mostly I th- the helping that interplay between the eagerness of Brad Pitt and the like giving a reason because you don't want him to be a lazy old detective, so he needs a reason to not want to do this Tufts case. But you're right. Other than that, I think I think that's the only thing it like functionally is doing is well, it gives a reason for him to be like, whoa, this is complicated. I don't want it because if he's just cynical old cop but who's really good at his job, saying I don't want to do this, he's not doing his job right versus like I want a simple last case I'm out soon has a bit of a grounding for him to like try and push the case off yeah but you're right after that it it, it and it's said so much but like it's it seems like you could have found a, another reason that would have, would be just as compelling because mm. it's a really thin reason for him to be more standoffish about the case without sort of undermining his professionalism but that's, I think, the only reason why they just kept it around because it just may- solved that problem. He's pushing back, not, and it, you don't. The audience still won't fault him for it. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, he could have been transferring to another town. You know, Brad Pitt's transferred in. Why couldn't he be transferring out? But yeah, it's. It, I think it's hey. just functionally there just to kind of allow his character to kind of have a few moments of like, I don't want to do this. Okay, I'll do this. Mm. <laughs> it's like, I guess we'll as well, just it. it gives him so much more. Like even when he's talking to like about life experience stuff, even to Tracy, the fact that he's retirement age is like, oh, this guy's seen some, some shit in his time. Basically like he's 
he he it imbues him with more of a kind of wisdom that he's like oh he's that old he's that world weary and experienced he's he's six days he's nearly retired this guy you know um, yeah well so, i mean in this in the script originally he was only going to be 45 um, oh <laughs> so yeah I mean, no, so that, that city was, will put years on you though darren i mean seriously yeah <laughs> <laughs> but he but, uh, but the idea of him retiring at 45 was just because he had his 20 in and so he can take you know half his pension and he can get out of there mm. um which i guess makes him seem even more cynical <laughs> because <laughs> just kind of cutting and running when you've when you've just about got your 20 years in seems I, I don't know. There's a couple of characters on the wire who, in the first season, kind of fought, like, kind of get injured and manage to get out because of, like, you know, and and it makes him look like one of those cops rather than, um, you know, a more kind of like dedicated cop, I guess. I think um, I think but yeah, what... so they aged they aged him up just to make it more appropriate for it to be played by Morgan Freeman. I mean, who, at we... one point in the film, Stacy's got 34 years, so it make, makes a bit more sense that he's retiring. I do have a kind of a, a question though. Like, I'll be interested to actually listen to these episodes to see as you go along throughout the script. Because uh, I think we were talking briefly off mic there. Like, they mention um, at one point, there's a, a bit in the script where, like, Somerset's, like, takes out a pizza and starts eating it. And I think we talked earlier in this episode about, oh, yeah, he's smoking cigarettes and stuff. And it kind of paints him more. Just this version of Somerset does not seem like the guy who would eat pizza. Like, he doesn't seem he doesn't seem like a smoker. And I know later on there's a bit where, like, Mills is saying, like, oh, I'm going to get another beer. And he's like, could I have a, some wine? And he says, like, yes, he's more elegant, he's more uh, more sophisticated, more of a man of more refined taste and stuff. He wouldn't be just scarfing down pizza and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, I wonder if that was a thing that came along with the casting of Morgan Freeman in particular, about the thing he brought to the character and then they adapted around him. And that within the original script, maybe within that scene of like Mills getting a, a beer, him and Somerset might be going like one for one on down in cans or something or anything, but... It kind of get you know it imbues the character a different way as well. Like if you consider like a grizzled old detective who is near retirement, he could be like almost like a not maybe not a Clint Eastwood type character, but like a, a more like a Nick Nolte exactly. type. Yeah, Nick Nolte would be a good example. Yeah, um, but uh, instead they they you know with with the actor they've chosen, or maybe they decided decided before Morgan Freeman came along, but they decided to twist him into someone who seems more like. He's more intelligent. He's less hot-headed. That's, that's why he goes to the library. Mills just gets the the cliff notes and all this kind of thing. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's kind of interesting because um, you know there were obviously a few actors that were considered beforehand, um, and when um, when Andrew Kevin Walker was writing the script, obviously he had you know written it for a specific uh, like he had kind of a specific type in mind and. Um, it was actually like they, they, you know, when when David Fincher said, you know, let's try and give it to Morgan Freeman, um, you know, th- the producers and everything were like, there's no way he's going to say yes to this because, you know, it's just way too damn market for him. And then apparently when he joined, he was like the most eager of everybody on set. He was like <laughs> really into getting the like. So it's it's kind of interesting. But, yeah, and- Andrew Kevin Walker was on set to rewrite the script as they went along. Um, you know, obviously due to WGA requirements, um, but yeah, so he did. He did kind of end up rewriting most of the dialogue to fit what Morgan Freeman said, and little changes like the fact that you know Morgan Freeman is like, um, y- you know, saying no when when in the script it said yes, and you know stuff like that, like little things that they've changed to make it like, you know, he's he's a bit more standoffish and 
you know, a, a less grizzled, let's put it like that, <laughs> than um, than was kind of originally envisaged in the in the script. Um, you know, apparently uh, Denzel Washington was considered for the role that Brad Pitt eventually um, got, and um, you know they did offer it to Gene Hackman at first. Uh, obviously, you know, French Connection being kind of like the, the kind right. of model that they were thinking of. Uh, but he turned it down because like 90% of the film was night shoots. And <laughs> he just didn't want to be being like, no, I, I you know. Uh, and then they offered it to Robert Duvall and he like turned it down and said no. But, you know, like the, the, the idea of Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington being Mills and Somerset is kind of an interesting idea. You know, like, um, I you know, I think that would be, apparently later on... Um, uh, you know, Denzel Washington kind of regretted that he had turned this film down, <laughs> and that you know, so which is kind of understandable. Uh, um, it's like the, when this yeah. the, the script for Fallen landed on his lap, it's like that was my second chance. Yeah. Oh dear. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I mean, you know, is there anything else that needs to be said about these particular scenes? Do we feel? Um, I mean, uh, just because if anyone uh, anyone who doesn't know me, uh, I also host a podcast called Bat Minutes, where we're going through the Batman movies from 1989 up to 1997. Uh, you know, one minute at a time. And within that show, I have a habit of having to connect everybody to everything and everything back to Batman somehow. Uh, and I should say, because um, the, the the real linchpin in this thing is uh, Reggie Cathy. Hey. Uh, you know, not Reggie Cathy, Reg E. Cathy, which is always this thing that slightly bugs me every time you see his name. It's like, why not just call yourself Reggie, man? But um, because... Uh, He's yeah, called Reginald on the opening titles of this as well. Reginald E. Cathy. He gives away uh, his full name. Oh, that's, that's the thing I, <laughs> think I mentioned this when I, we were talking on Facebook earlier in the week. They give Mark Boone Jr. an opening title credit. And he literally walks <laughs> yeah. into a room and walks back out again. But uh, uh, I mean, his part was meant to have about five pages worth in the script, so oh, fair it kind of it kind of makes sense. Uh, same with John C. McGinley. Uh, um, his, his character was meant to have like about two pages worth of script, but, which they ended up kind of cutting down, which is why they get kind of prominent Billy. Yeah, uh, but uh, but anyway, because um, uh, Reggie Cathy was quite notably, uh, he's been killed by both uh, the Riddler and Batman because he obviously. He's in the mask where he's offed uh, by Jim Carrey towards the end of that, uh, and then he's the homeless guy in American Psycho who Christian Bale kills, uh, and then ah. of course he's also um, he actually played the part of Red in a stage version of the Shawshank Redemption, which of course played by Morgan Freeman, uh, and then of course he would go on to be quite famously in uh, House of Cards with Kevin Spacey a couple of years down the line, because a show that was executive produced. I think the pilot was directed by David Fincher. So the uh, first two episodes were directed by David Fincher. Well, there you go. So like you know, yeah. keeping his keeping his friends close there. Uh, and Reggie Cat is it's always got a weird thing. So I've seen him in a bunch of stuff because he's in like The Wire and Oz and stuff as well. And I've always wondered because if you see him in House of Cards, his head's shaped very strangely. And every time and he's got a shaved head in that, and then you see him now with like hair. I keep wondering, is that a wig to cover up? The fact that his head's shaped kind of weird, or and even in this scene, I was like, I don't know if that's his actual hair, man. I'm gonna have to do some deep digging into the the, the late great Reggie Cathy, it seems. Yeah, uh, I mean, he died like early last year, didn't he? Um, mm. uh, I mean, I think one of his final ish films was playing um, the the dad of um, Thingamajig in uh, Fantastic Four. Oh yeah, he uh, was like uh, Johnny Storm, uh, Doctor Storm, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, um, he was quite. He was quite young. He was only fifty nine. Mm. Um, you know, which is uh, you know, born in uh, born in fifty eight, same year as Prince uh, and Madonna and Michael Jackson. 
Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I mean, you know, obviously, uh, I mean, I, I you know, I, I'd seen him in various things, but I think I really kind of noticed him when I started watching him on The Wire. Um, and he he plays a really funny character who just keeps kind of ribbing uh, what's his face off of uh, the mayor, the one who turns into the mayor. I can't remember his name. Oh yeah, Car- Carcetti. Yeah, oh. was, uh, yeah, yeah. Little just, little uh, finger, a, basically. He, yeah. I well, gonna I was going to say yeah. Some people know him for that. I know him from Queer as Folk, which is when I first saw him. You know, the original series. Um, but yeah, it's funny because in that, like, he, you know, Carcetti keeps saying, "Did you vote for me, Norman?" And Norman's like. I'm not saying, you know, like, and he just kind of keeps, you know, and I, I don't know, he's kind of, he's kind of really funny in that, um, you know, like, but yeah, so briefly here, it, it, it's really weird because I, you know, um, pretty much every character only really gets to appear in one scene. So obviously, you know, Crazy Joe Devolo is in one scene, Reggie Cathy's in one scene, um, you know, later on, like you say, Mark Boone Jr.'s in one scene, John C. McGinley's in one scene, like everybody in this film appears in one scene apart from like the kind of the main kind of three or four cast members. Um, you know, there's a lot of kind of like one scene kind of um, kind of appearances from different characters throughout this. Um, but yeah, Reggie Cathy was a, such a great actor. Um, yeah, it, 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 I don't know. It, it's, kind of, it's kind of weird to see him so young in this film and <laughs> just be like, oh, there he is, Reggie Cathy. Mm. Um, you know, although saying that, you know, on my recent rewatch of this for this particular project, um, I would, Morgan Freeman looks super young in this film. I mean, I know Morgan Freeman doesn't seem to age that much, but these days he, he's got a lot of white hair. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, even though you think of him as being old in this film, he's, he still looks remarkably young. And Brad Pitt seems to have some kind of eye makeup thing going on. Um, his eyes seem to be, I don't know, there's something around his eyes that make his eyes seem like, I, uh, I don't know what that was all about. I mean, there's, there's a thing of Brad Pitt in this movie too, where he seems to be, maybe it was a 90s fashion thing, but he seems to be wearing like a giant shirt as well. Like, you know, maybe not, I'm used to an age where everyone wears kind of fitted shirts, but this seems like, oh, he's wearing a shirt that's way too big for him and he's just got it tucked in and stuff like that. <laughs> it's like maybe back then they didn't have things more like fitted to cut your, to, to your, uh, to your exact physique, but like. I, think I mean, you, did you have? Did you not see Clueless um, and, and how people dressed and how Cher was not happy with this as a, as a thing? Um, yeah, everyone was wearing everything baggy, even the police officers. Oh man, I'd love to see a, a, a scene of Paul Rudd and Alicia Silverstone <laughs> sitting watching Seven and just her Cher Horowitz <laughs> commenting on the fashion. Uh, yeah, it's, it's funny uh, as well. Uh, Brad Pitt uh, brought all his own ties, so all of the ties that are worn in this film are his own ties, oh. and they're all terrible. And they don't <laughs> because he wanted he That's he so he particularly random. wanted David Mills to have a terrible fashion sense. Yeah. So that was like the extra detail that he brought. Yeah. Uh, yeah so Adele, is there anything else that you want to say about these minutes? No, I, th- I think we've we've covered it all. Um, I yeah, I, th- I think that they they functionally serve to. To like really get the dynamics right and um and yeah it it i i particularly like the the quick way we get to both of the main characters like views on the world just immediately between the the how they interact with the crime scene and how they interact with the the, the captain um it's just very clear who these people are and how that's one of the reasons that they're not gonna they're rubbing each other the wrong way and like Looking at the script, all the extraneous scenes or all the scenes that were cut off, cut out, I think were really smart moves. Like cutting out the cutaway to Mills and his and his wife and like their dynamic being really explored made sense because right now we care about Mills and Somerset. We don't need to learn about the other two until later. 
And so not trying to develop them early really worked well and sort of giving Mill's wife less airtime to talk about how she's kind of world wary of the city. I think in the original screenplay was probably try, trying to draw some clear parallels with John Doe, but you just don't need to show it that much because her life is like even in the shorter amount of screen time she gets, you know, in the middle part of the film where she sort of crops up more. It's just obvious where she where she sits with this move. And so you don't need to like put on the gas and show that everywhere. And I thought that these were really smart cuts that kept the film on pace. <laughs> um, so I feel then we should go to plugs. Uh, Adele, is there anything that you want to plug? Sure. I co-host a craft beer and video games podcast on the Out of Lives Network. It's called Tanked Up, and you can find it on all of the things, as well as I produce a live comedy night here in Bristol and turn it into a um, podcast with uh, new comics, new material, so it's a little more raw than you see on Netflix, and it's called This Next Act. Uh, yeah, I mentioned briefly there, uh, I'm one of the hosts of Bat Minutes, which is a podcast that you've featured on uh, several times, Darren. Uh, where we're going through the Batman movies from 1989 up to and including 1997, uh, one minute at a time. Uh, we've currently done the first two films, so that's Batman, Batman Returns. They're done to their entirety. And we've also got some uh, hiatus bonus episodes uh, in between seasons one and two. We did uh, an analysis of each of the films of Prince, which again, Darren, up your up your alley there. Uh, those are just little quick reviews. And then we have a review of um, the Halle Berry Catwoman movie coming out quite soon as well. So uh, that was that was a lot of fun, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, and yeah, you can just get them in any, old, any of your old podcatchers. And you can um, hear me previously on a podcast where I talked about a film called The Boy Next Door, Minute by Minute, uh, called The Cast Next Door. Um, which you can find on various podcatchers. And you can also follow it, if you wish, I don't know why you would, on Twitter at First Ed Iliad, which is a reference to the fact that in the film there is a first edition of the Iliad. Right. Um, which <laughs> is a thing that could never actually exist, given the oral tradition. Um, and probably one of the better-known moments from that film. Uh, so thanks to both of you for joining me here today. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for having me too. And otherwise, goodbye.